Good evening. I'm speaking to you from the city of New Orleans. Nearly empty, still partly underwater, and waiting for life and hope to return. Eastward from Lake Pontchartrain, across the Mississippi coast, to Alabama and into Florida, millions of lives were changed in a day by a cruel and wasteful storm. This might come as a shock to some of you who aren't spending lockdown obsessively analyzing every piece of news that comes off of Twitter, but last week, or maybe it was earlier this week, I don't quite remember, former President George Bush, you know, the alive one, put out this video that was critical of the government's response to coronavirus and was filmed in black and white, and had a dramatic emotional soundtrack that wasn't quite Sarah McLachlan, but it was getting there. And in response to this video that really advocated for nothing, it contained no policy proposals, no demands on behalf of the American people, in response, a bunch of liberal Democrats came out of the woodwork to, you guessed it, praise George Bush, uphold him as a quote-unquote true president who understood the quote-unquote gravity of the office and made them misty-eyed for the days of W. I really don't know how many times I need to talk about this, but apparently what I've done so far hasn't been enough. I've talked about this in my most recent book, Structural Politics, and I've spoken at length about, in particular, George Bush's bone-chilling war crimes overseas in episode 47, B. Bush, Do Crimes. You know, during the Iraq War, we used an estimated thousand tons of depleted uranium ammunition on civilians for a war that was based on a lie. If you want to see the impact of the war almost 20 years after it started, there's a really horrifying Twitter account you should look at called Fallujah Birth Defects. Their handle is at FDefects. But what am I doing? I've already talked about this before, and in all my episodes, I've never retread the same ground. Well, if a million dead Iraqis doesn't convince you that George Bush is a devil who should be locked away for the rest of his life, then I suppose it's time to talk about Hurricane Katrina. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 71, Sinking City. Hidden History is always available on www.hiddenhistory.show, and if you like what I do, then subscribe to the show on Spotify, Review it on Apple Podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter, at HIDDNHistoryPod. So, based on both deductive reasoning and my listening statistics, if you listen to and understand this show, then you were alive for Hurricane Katrina. Because of that lovely fact... I would say that that means I don't have to go as in-depth with background and introductory information about the hurricane, but it's approaching the 15-year anniversary, and apparently, and now I'm just telling you what I've seen, apparently there are actually people who think that George Bush had a good response to Katrina. God, the only person who should be able to say I miss George Bush is the guy that threw the shoe. So, let's get into it. Katrina actually made landfall three different times. 
one in Florida as a tropical storm, once in Burris Triumph, Louisiana as a Category 3 hurricane, and the final time in New Orleans and southern Mississippi on August 29th, 2005. Now that we have this simple chronology set up, I'm faced with the rather daunting question of where do I start? Because there is an absolutely overwhelming amount to talk about when it comes to Katrina, not all of which I'm going to be able to fit into this episode. But if I'm going to start somewhere, then let it be with this foundational truth that we need to keep in mind throughout the rest of this episode. It is impossible to separate conversations about governmental preparation and response to Hurricane Katrina from conversations about race. You see, New Orleans is unlike a lot of cities in the United States because it's 59% black. We cannot in good faith criticize the response without acknowledging it as an extension of the institutional and environmental racism that hangs over this country like a dense fog. So with that in mind, I'm going to start off by talking about the preparations for the storm itself. Now, New Orleans has always been vulnerable to hurricanes if not just for its location on the Gulf of Mexico, but also for its elevation. For a city on the sea, the elevation of New Orleans ranges from 6.5 to 20 feet below sea level. So you might be wondering, why build a city below sea level? Well, it turns out it didn't start that way. And this is only going to be a rather quick tangent, because this episode isn't really about the history of New Orleans. But the way that the Mississippi River Delta maintains its level is by shifting around silt, which invariably changes the course of the river, and would end up flooding the city. To control the shift of the Mississippi, the people of New Orleans built levees, which regulated the movement of the water, and created new areas for the city to expand. Once the water was pumped out of these swamps, it caused soil subsidence, which means that the ground began to collapse in on itself and sink below sea level. The city expanded onto this new land, and the levees became even more important. Then, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, which to this day is the most destructive flood in American history. It caused the federal government to legislate the Flood Control Act of 1928, which gave the Army Corps of Engineers permission to build levees along the Mississippi and Sacramento rivers. In Section 3 of the 1928 Act, it stated something that's going to be rather important later on. No liability of any kind would attach or rest upon the United States for any damage from or by floods or floodwaters at any place, providing that if on any stretch of the banks of the Mississippi River it was impracticable to construct levees. So that's pretty much an indemnity clause, freeing the Army Corps of Engineers from any liability should their levees fail. In September 1965, Hurricane Betsy hammered the Gulf Coast and caused intense flooding in the Delta. A month later, the federal government passed the Flood Control Act of 1965, which mandated that all levees were to be designed and constructed by the Army Corps of Engineers, and only once they were done would they be turned over to local municipalities for maintenance purposes. Included in the 65 Act were the levees of New Orleans. In 2005, 
the levees failed catastrophically. In six places across the city, the Industrial Canal, London Avenue Canal, and 17th Street Canal, levees collapsed well below their design threshold. 80% of the city was underwater. A city that in 2005 was home to 454,000 people would see its population more than halved the following year. Fifteen years later, and the city has still not recovered. But I suppose it could have been worse. After all, the incredible preparation work done by the Bush administration really showed. So let's um, get back to talking about that uh, preparation. On August 27th, Bush declared a state of emergency in parts of Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And even though the coastal districts of Alabama and Mississippi were included in this order, New Orleans, projected to receive a direct hit from the hurricane, was not. Michael Brown, Bush's appointed head of FEMA, said that it was because the governor of Louisiana, Kathleen Blanco, had not included the city in her request for federal aid. The governor then released a copy of the letter she had sent the federal government, which explicitly requested aid for New Orleans. Hmm. I wonder why that could be. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Now, you've all probably seen that clip, but outside of that little five-second snip, Kanye levels a number of very accurate criticisms at particularly the media response to Katrina. Only 33% of New Orleans is white, but when white families were shown on the news in the wake of Katrina, they were survivors or looking for food. When it was black families, they were looters. As the mayor of New Orleans, Ray Nagan, lied on Oprah, saying that there were hundreds of gang members wreaking havoc in the Superdome, it turns out that the most heinous crimes in the now apocalyptic city were being committed by white men. With 80% of the city underwater, enclaves of rich white men who lived in the dry neighborhoods blocked off access to their streets and formed armed militia bands who gunned down anyone they said didn't belong. For many white militiamen, it was an opportunity for race war, to hunt down and murder people, like as one member of the militia said, pheasant season in South Dakota. As New Orleans fractured along racial lines, white vigilantism went through the roof, with at least 11 black residents lynched by white mobs in the span of a work week. We'll never know how many people were murdered. We'll never come close to having the full picture. For most of these killings, the New Orleans Police Department didn't even open a file. The killers will in all likelihood never see justice. They'll continue to have barbecues in Algiers Point and brag about when they were the law. If you'd like to read more specifically about white supremacist violence in the wake of Katrina, I've linked an article from ProPublica in the description of this episode, so it'll be accessible wherever you listen. So obviously there is a lot more that I could talk about here, but for the last segment of this episode, I want to talk about a place. The Refuge of Last Resort. The New Orleans Superdome. 
As the coming scope of Katrina became apparent, the city of New Orleans shut down public transportation. And so when it came time to evacuate, only those relatively wealthy enough to afford a car could do so. For those who were now trapped in the sinking city, there were only a few places they could go, one of which was the New Orleans Superdome, the massive indoor stadium that houses the New Orleans Saints. To say that the facility was unprepared would be an understatement. But while some of that ill-preparedness was due to incompetence and mismanagement, other parts of it were intentional. In a September 23, 2005 article in Time called Four Places Where the System Broke Down, it came out that city officials had intentionally not stored enough food, water, and a generator fuel at the Superdome because, over the years, city officials have stressed that they didn't want to make it too comfortable at the Superdome, since it was always safer to leave the city altogether. So what happens when such an intentionally unsupplied facility is faced with a massive influx of people who were physically unable to leave the city? They're corralled into hell on earth. On August 29th, the same day that Katrina made landfall in New Orleans, the power to the Superdome failed. The backup generators, stocked with insufficient fuel, only had enough capacity to power the emergency lights. As a result, the air conditioning ceased function, and hundreds of refrigerators and freezers full of food began to rot in the summer humidity. A few hours later, the roof of the Superdome, said to be able to withstand winds of 200 miles an hour, began to peel off, letting in torrential rain on the people below. The previous day, the National Guard had delivered enough MREs and packaged water to feed 15,000 people for three days. But the Superdome had no medicine, no doctors, no functioning toilets, and no cots. As a matter of fact, the refugees, who would soon number 20,000 and be stationed there for five days, they were told that they needed to bring their own food, bed, and water. After a member of the National Guard stationed in the Superdome was attacked in a flooded locker room, the soldiers erected a massive barbed wire barrier to separate them from the citizens of New Orleans. Chris Kyle, the psychotic killer of American sniper fame, claimed, most likely falsely, that during Katrina he perched himself up on the Superdome roof and murdered 30 people. Katrina brought about a complete breakdown in social order. Black men and women were lynched in the streets by roving militia bands who did so with the complete support of the police and the army. Inmates in prisons around the city were abandoned in their cells as guards ran for the safety of higher ground. After the floodwaters subsided, hundreds of inmates would be reclassified as unaccounted for. In the months following the storm, 
FEMA moved to rehouse the 80,000 newly homeless citizens of New Orleans through specially constructed modular trailers, but only delivered 20% of the amount promised, further deepening the post-Katrina housing shortage. On August 30th, the day after Katrina made landfall, Dick Cheney ordered electrical crews in the process of restoring power to New Orleans hospitals to instead relocate to Collins, Mississippi, to maintain the Colonial Pipeline, which transports gas from Texas to the Northeast. Though the hurricane hit on Monday, August 29th, Bush wouldn't return from his vacation in Texas until Wednesday, August 31st, flying over the disaster zone in Air Force One on the way back. The government would then attempt to federalize the Louisiana National Guard, but not those in Mississippi or Alabama. Michael Brown, the former head of FEMA, said the White House had sought federalization in order to embarrass Governor Blanco, a woman and member of the Democratic Party. On September 5, 2005, while visiting a relief center in Houston, Barbara Bush said, Almost everyone I've talked to says, we're going to move to Houston. What I'm hearing, which is sort of scary, is they all want to stay in Texas. So many of the people in arenas here, you know, were underprivileged. She would attempt to recover from the bad press of these remarks by donating money to the Bush-Clinton-Katrina Relief Fund, but earmarked her donation to go to her son's software company. And no matter what happened, the Louisiana National Guard would have been underprepared because 40% of them had been called up to serve in Iraq. Even the meager help that FEMA was able to dispense was racially biased, though the worst-hit neighborhoods were primarily black, like the Lower Ninth Ward, which is 98% African American, the majority of aid went to the rich white neighborhoods that had been spared the bulk of destruction. In 2007, An independent study presented before the House of Representatives revealed that the Army Corps of Engineers had failed to correctly design and construct the New Orleans levees. And had they been built to the specifications that the citizens of New Orleans were told they were, then not a single drop of water would have entered the city. But federal courts later ruled that the Corps couldn't be held liable for the damage and death caused by their mistake because of Section 3 of the Flood Control Act of 1928. Where's the justice there? After Katrina, the levee system got a $14 billion upgrade. But thanks to sea level rise and ground subsidence, the new levees will be useless by 2023. I hope this episode, to some degree, has done its job. George Bush is not a cuddly old man who paints pictures who you can remember fondly once he's out of office. He's a criminal and a monster who has spent his entire life just one step ahead of justice. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Hidden History on Spotify, rate it on Apple Podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter at H-I-D-D-N History Pod. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.